Welcome to the Commission Podcast. Today is session number four from the main talks at our Revive Bible Festival this past June. We're working through the book of Jonah and the theme of going to the great city. If you missed the previous sessions, head back to those to catch up. In this episode, we'll hear from Andy Mason, pastor at St. John's Chelsea and director of church strengthening at Commission on Jonah chapter four and the compassion of God. We'll hear how God's compassion and his grace can sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable and how the same was true for Jonah with the people of Nineveh. Enjoy. Hello, good afternoon. I'm going to be reading from Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 to 10. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was still at home, this is what I tried to forestall by fearing to tarnish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, isn't it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at the place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant, made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I am so angry, I wish I were dead. But the God Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for great city of Nivea, in which there were more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Let's pray. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. Amen. Now, um, I want you to imagine that um, one Sunday, you need, some, um, you need some money to get home from church. Uh, you, you forgot to bring your wallet. And so there's a, there's, an, there's a godly senior lady in your church, Auntie Ngozi. And she very kindly gives you 10 quid for your train fare. How would you feel? Well, you'd, you know, you'd be a bit grateful, wouldn't you? You'd say, oh, thank you, as your mum taught you to say. Um, but then let, let, let's imagine that you, you had a bigger problem. Actually, you needed to pay your, heat, your heating bill. And Auntie Ngozi gave you 100 quid. Well, you'd be properly grateful. You might send her a card or something. But then, let, let's imagine that you got yourself into a real problem with a loan shark, and you couldn't pay it off, and you, and you needed 1,000 pounds. And she gave you what you needed. Well, you'd be moved. You'd get her a gift. You'd, you'd say a proper thanks. But then, let's imagine that you needed money to buy a flat, and Auntie Ngozi gave you hundreds of thousands of pounds. Well, you'd be tempted to fall down and worship her, wouldn't you? You see, the size of the gift is proportionate to the love that you feel towards the person. But now also imagine that you weren't Auntie Ngozi's friend. You had been the bane of her life. You were her next-door neighbor, and you insulted her family. You threw trash in her garden, you stole from her house and spat in her face. And imagine that she still gave you 
hundreds of thousands of pounds, maybe to get you to move. <laughs> well, that would be overwhelming, wouldn't it? Overwhelming kindness. Who on earth would ever do that? Well, no one would, except God. Because what I've just given you is a picture of the grace of the gospel. God's grace is God's generosity poured out on undeserving people. It is his kindness to his enemies. And what an incredible thing that is. Salvation is not wage for work. It's not a a reward for attendance. It's not a prize for achievement. It's not a bonus for good results. It is an absolute free gift to undeserving people. Our God is a God of amazing grace. And that is why we love John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, isn't it? That's why it has become our kind of evangelical national anthem. And we'll be singing it later. Newton had been a slave trader back in the 1700s, dramatically converted, and had this huge experience of the grace of God. And he wrote his hymn as a result. And I'm uh, going to share some words from the hymn. Unconventionally for revival, I'm not going to sing them. Um, My wife would ban me for from preaching for life if I did that. So here are the words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. It is very, very moving, and it brilliantly summarizes the Bible's message of grace. But pause for a moment. See, white blokes like me might like singing this, but just think how John Newton's hymn would have sounded to the slaves who had been in John Newton's ship. What would they have thought of John Newton's joy? How would they have reacted to hearing of his story? Would they have called it amazing grace? Maybe to them, grace would have seemed pretty unfair. Not so much amazing grace, but riding roughshod over human rights grace? How could God offer such welcome to an evil man? You see, grace is amazing, but do you really understand how problematic it is? Yes, grace is amazing, but do you get how disturbing it is to have a God who justifies the ungodly? The book of Jonah confronts this very question head on, and it blows all our religious sentimentality out of the water. We've just looked at Jonah chapter 3, and we've seen, haven't we, God's grace to Nineveh. In chapter 3, Jonah finally arrived in this great pagan city, and he preached to the unbelievers there, and they confessed their sins and turned to the Lord. And at first glance, it seems that the book of Jonah really should have kind of stopped there with a great revival. Surely this is the big finale. This is the moment of triumph. This is the moment of victory. One little preacher on his own has has engaged this incredible spiritual movement. We've got the most successful church plant ever. 120,000 people on the spot. Eat your heart out, Apostle Peter. Eat your heart out, Billy Graham. Jonah is the man. Chapter 3 is the conclusion you and I want, isn't it? uplifts us, encourages us, thousands turning to the Lord. Plus, if we'd stopped with chapter 3, we could have had one less session and we could have gone home early. But that's not how it goes. We get chapter 4, and we find that there is a different kind of finale than what we were expecting. You see, chapter 4 raises 
the problem of grace. Chapter 4 asks, is it really okay what happens to Nineveh? Now let's, let's remember that these guys weren't little old ladies or babies in pushchairs. They were a very bloodthirsty crew. The historian Tom Holland describes the Assyrians as the most violent of the Mesopotamian empires. And by the standards of the time, that is saying something. The prophet Nahum, just a few pages on from Jonah, calls Nineveh the city of blood. That is not a compliment, is it? He he talks about how they pile up the dead. That's not the kind of person you want coming over your house for dinner. These were people who gave war crimes a whole new meaning. The word wicked is not a, a word that we use in everyday conversation, but actually, in chapter 1, it is a really good word to describe Nineveh. And here in chapter 3, God is showing them his grace. What's going on? A number of years ago, I had a boy in my congregation, young lad, he turned up with a black eye. I asked him, how do you get that? He told me. And I knew the story wasn't true. And I knew who had done it. It was someone we were trying to reach with the gospel. And I tell you what, I did not, I wanted to give that guy something, but it wasn't the gospel in that moment. See, what should God do with someone who does that? Do we really want to preach grace to people who do stuff like that? Who do it to our friends, to our child, to our mum? See, chapter 4 shows us how grace can make, make us feel very uncomfortable. And we'll see here, this is not just an extra chapter thrown in to stop us going home early, but it's actually the real point of the whole book. This is where the real lessons are revealed. What do we see in these verses? Three things. Jonah's anger towards God, God's lesson for Jonah, and God's concern for Nineveh. Firstly then, Jonah's anger towards God. Do you ever get angry? I'm sure you don't. But you know, some of us here might get angry. I, a number of years ago, I once had an argy-bargy with a bus driver driving on the way to Revive. I beeped him. He cut me off. He insulted me. I spoke ungraciously back to him. <laughs> there I was on my way to a Christian festival, the pastor of a church, and I did not have my temper under control. Do you ever get angry? Well, in this passage, we've got some real anger. Some real anger. And this isn't the kind of polite, passive-aggressive English anger, but this is proper rage. It's not road rage. It's not about a bus driver. It's about God. Jonah is angry at God. Look at verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. The word for anger here is the same word that is used for Cain's anger in Genesis 4 when he kills Abel. Jonah is deeply offended. He is livid. He is bursting his blood vessels. He is ready to take a swing at God. Why? Because of chapter 3. The revival in chapter 3 is his problem. Chapter 3 is the reason for the issues of chapter 4. Jonah's lost his cool because God has poured out his grace. This revival does not make him rejoice, but it sends him into a rage. You see, after seeing what's happened, Jonah doesn't sit down and write a book on how to plant the perfect church. No, he blows his top. The seeming success of his preaching is his problem. And if you look carefully at the original words in chapter 3, we read that Nineveh turned from evil. But here, the original Hebrew tells us that Jonah views what happened in chapter 3 as evil. 
Nineveh's repentance repulses him. Now, that's ironic because the, God, the grace of God has not left the Assyrians unchanged. There is repentance in Nineveh. God hasn't indulged their sin. He hasn't left them as they were, but he's granted them repentance. So when we're talking of God's grace here in Jonah 4, we know that this isn't cheap grace. It's not the kind of grace that increases sin. It's not God just kind of permitting them to keep on doing evil. Nevertheless, Jonah's so provoked that he wants to die in verse 3. He just can't handle it. It's too much. And his real problem is the character of God. It's God himself who sent Jonah into a rage. And Jonah here prays one of the strangest prayers in the Bible. It's in chapter 2, he cried out to God in desperation, didn't he, from the belly of a fish. But now he cries out in anger. And his, and his prayer is basically, dear Lord, this is just typical. I knew this was going to happen. That's why I didn't want the job. Dear Lord, I know what you're like. And he describes the character of God. Look with me at verse 2. What does it say? You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Who is Jonah's God? Well, he's gracious. He doesn't treat people as they deserve. He's not tit for tat, but he's generous to the undeserving. He's compassionate. He doesn't come down hard on people. He's slow to anger. He's not testy. He's not impatient. He's, he, he's abounding in love, we read. He's committed. He keeps his promises, even if other people don't. And he relents from calamity or judgment. The Lord likes to turn away from judgment. He enjoys not having to take people to task. It's, and it's clear here that Jonah knows who God is. You see, this description isn't being just kind of plucked out of nowhere. And Jonah hasn't got the wrong end of the stick. You know, he hasn't fallen into heresy. He hasn't kind of misunderstood who God is. No, he's spot on. He's exactly right. His theology is sound. And what he's doing here, he's quoting a very famous part of God's law back in Exodus 34 when God's people had turned away to worship idols. And um, God uh, uh, said he was going to send his judgment. Moses prays and, and God relents and he shows them grace. And God reveals who he is and he tells them this, this, these very things about himself. Jonah knew this. This was uh, the grace that had been shown to Israel, and it was the very foundation of their identity. And Jonah now resents that this grace is going out to the city of blood. He can't stand it. He's disgusted by it. Now, if we took a survey now of this room, and we asked everyone the question, which bit of God's character or God's ways do you find most difficult? I guess, you know, I'm guessing that some might say, well, his control of everything. You know, how can God be in control and we choose and decide? Or some might say, well, actually, you know, what we were looking at in the last session, his judgment, his wrath, I find that really difficult. But for Jonah, it's God's grace. Jonah's blown his gasket because he sees the Lord as a bleeding heart liberal. He's a God of mushy kindness, a weak, a weak walkover. Now, before you and I say, what a self-righteous, heartless, awful man. I'm glad I'm not like him. Remember that Assyria is a threat to his country. They are his enemies. Nineveh's repentance is all good for them, but how about the people of Israel? God's saving us, the Assyrians may leave Israel unsafe. 
Jonah's a good patriot. He wants his country to be protected. And remember the prophet Nahum, along with another of un- a, a number of other Old Testament prof- uh, prophets, did prophesy judgment on Nineveh. And they didn't get rebuked. They didn't end up in storms. And they didn't generally end up in the bellies of fish as a result. And it's not like God never judges wicked cities in the Bible, is it? And in 612 BC, Nineveh was indeed reduced to rubble. Why on earth would you want your enemies to be saved? Which would you like more today if you had to choose? The defeat of the Russian armies or their spiritual revival? How about if God spared them defeat and showed them grace? If you had to choose which you would choose, your own personal security or the gospel of grace, which would you go for? You see, the unsettling truth is that God's grace means that he saves people that we don't want to go near. Our social media culture tells us to denounce those we disagree with and cancel the competition. Our political culture tells us don't have conversations with your opponents, but condemn them. But here we have a God who touches the unclean, who hangs out with tax collectors, who saves thieves on crosses, a God who's the, who is the friend of Assyrians. Now, we might, not God, we, we might not mind God saving our kind of sinner. You know, the kind of sinner we think of as mostly victim. But God can save predators too. He's the friend to the kind of sinners that we may want to see burn. He's the friend of sinners who have sinned against us. Now remember, as I say that, salvation always involves people's repentance. It always involves a change of heart. God doesn't dish out cheap grace, and we always do our safeguarding. But this is shocking, is it not? Are you ready to have the kind of church that includes people you wouldn't want to be seen dead with? Our God is a God who makes himself the friend of Assyrians. Changes everything, doesn't it? You ready for the next point? God's lesson for Jonah. Now, a number of years ago, I was driving down to Cornwall to give some talks at a little conference. I drove my wife, and the sat-nav told me to go down a country lane as a kind of the most direct route. It had been a good, good, good drive. No road rage, no altercations of bus drivers. I've been growing in, in holiness in the intervening period. And we, we got to this, to this country lane. At the start of the lane, there was a big sign saying the road was closed. I saw the sign. I looked down the road, and I said to my wife, that's not closed. She said, I think it is. I said, no, it isn't. Look, it'll be fine. It's a mistake. And I had the steering wheel, so I drove down the lane. And in fact, I was right. The road wasn't closed for five minutes. (laughs) And we came to a massive metal fence. And I suddenly realized, yes, I had grown in holiness, but I had a way to go in wisdom. You see, one of the realities is that we often can't be just told something. Words are not enough. We have to be shown, don't we? The signs are clear, but we just don't listen. And Jonah needs to learn something here. God is determined to teach him a lesson. God hears Jonah's complaint, verses 1 to 3, but then he fires a question, verse 4. Is it right for you to be angry? Are you in the right here, Jonah? Are you innocent? God will now answer and give Jonah his lesson. And this lesson really is the point of the whole book. It's a kind of real-life real parable 
to drive the issue home. And it's the big lesson. It's a big lesson who God is and his ways. Now, this chapter has a bit of a kind of hamburger structure. You know, the outer bits are the same, and the juicy bit, the good bit, is in the middle. So, hang, so this, this, this parable, this real-life parable, is the kind of juicy bit of the, um, of the chapter. It's the big lesson. And it starts off in verse 5 with Jonah going out of the city. He removes himself from the pagan city he hates. Rather than to stay in and teach and disciple and strengthen the believers, he moves out in disgust. Notice in chapter 1, Jonah ran away from Nineveh because he didn't want to preach the gospel to them. In chapter 4, he runs away from Nineveh because he has preached the gospel to them and they've been blessed. Despite the revival, it seems that he's still hoping for some kind of judgment to fall on them. So he goes on a, on a kind of exodus out of this stinking Egypt to build himself a booth in the wilderness hoping that God will come and smite the pagan idolaters? Will there be fire from the, from the sky like with Sodom? Will the angel of death come? He can only hope. Yet today, it is not Nineveh who's going to get its comeuppance. It is Jonah. What happens? Verse 6, there is grace for Jonah. The Lord provides a plant. Now that word provide is a key word. It's a key word. Could we just say that word all together, provide, provide. Thank you very much. One of my congregation members said everyone looked really tired today, like they'd been out raving all night. I don't know if you're out raving. Hang in there. There's some good stuff here for us. Focus on that word provide. The Lord provides a plant to save Jonah from deadly sunstroke. The plant grows. It gives him shade in the vicious midday sun. It covers him. And he's happy as Larry under its protection. I remember a number of years ago having a chat with a guy who asked me what I did. I said, well, I was, in, you know, I was doing church planting. And we had a chat about that. We talked about church planting for about five minutes. And then he asked me how long I'd been into gardening. Now, the guy thought I was talking about horticulture. Now, fair enough, it is kind of weird, isn't it? I'm, you know, I, I get that. But, and we can make the same mistake here. You see, this is not about growing plants. This has got a spiritual meaning. It's about God's grace. Back in chapter 1, God had provided a fish. Here in chapter 4, God provides the plant to shade Jonah. And shade in the Bible is a common picture of, of God's safety and protection. So God provides for Jonah. But then in verses 7 to 8, it switches around. Notice that. One minute, Jonah's sitting there, enjoying the Lord's shade, hoping Nineveh's going to burn. And then the next minute, the grace is, is withdrawn. In verses 7 to 8, the Lord now, what does he do? He provides a pesky, greedy worm who comes up and chews up the plant. And then the Lord provides a nasty, a nasty easterly wind that scorches Jonah. The shade is the picture of protection and safety. The worms and the wind are symbols of judgment. What's going on? Well, it seems that Jonah and Nineveh are swapping places. Remember, this is a real-life parable. It's like Jonah swapping places with Nineveh for a moment. He's burnt up, not them. He's scorched, not them. Jonah wants God to smite the pagans and bless the believer. But God here saves the pagans and corrects the believer. He's been taught that law-abiding believers need grace just as much as pagan cities do. This is God's lesson to him. And do you know what? It, it, this morning, it doesn't matter what your Bible scores are. It doesn't matter how civilized you are. At the end of the day, you and I have, have been Nineveh. 
And that point is being driven home here in this parable. Right, right, right in the middle of the juicy center of the Hamburg in verse 6, we get this combined name for God. God is called the Lord God. It's the only time he's called this in the book of Jonah. And it's a combination. Okay, it's a little bit technical, but hang in there. It, it, it's a combination of, of two words. The word Yahweh, which is, which is Israel's name for God, and the word Elohim, which is the Gentiles' name for God. The point is this. He's... He's Yahweh and, and Elohim. He's the God of Israel and the God of the pagan Gentiles. He's the God of all. He's the, he's the global universal God. We are all saved the same way by the same God. We, we all depend upon the same grace. Whether you're a pagan idolater or a law-abiding Jew or a good evangelical, we're all saved the same way. Now, for us who live a few thousand years later, the lesson that God teaches Jonah is actually even more profound because we know that a better Jonah has come, don't we? The Lord Jesus. He's the better Jonah who went out of the city, not to pronounce judgment on it, but to save it. Jonah superficially swapped places with Nineveh in the parable, but Jesus really did swap places with us. On the cross, he was scorched up. He was eaten up. In verse 8, Jonah says he's so angry at the grace of God, he wants, uh, he wants to die. But the Lord Jesus really did die to bear God's anger for us. The friend of Assyrians came down to become our friend on the cross. Let's learn God's lesson. It's all about amazing, shocking, disturbing grace. Point three, God's concern for Nineveh. Well, in verse, in verse nine, again, the Lord confronts Jonah in his anger and his depression and his despair. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Have you not understood the lesson? Do you not grasp what I'm teaching you here? Jonah clearly doesn't. In fact, the whole experience simply strengthens his anger, his misery, his despair, and his death wish. You see, you can keep all the rules and do all the right things, and yet still have a deeply rebellious heart. You can conform to evangelical culture and yet have a heart that still needs to be converted. Now, if Jonah doesn't get it, the Lord will have to tell him. And the Lord speaks here of his concern. The word uh, here means compassion. Uh, it means pity. It's the kind of kindness that holds back judgment. And Jonah's concerned here. He's just concerned for something else, the wrong stuff. He's got compassion for the plant. He's got concern for himself. He, he cares about the shade that he's experiencing. But he doesn't give a monkeys for this city that is laid out before him. The plant has been a gift. He hasn't made it, and he's all wound up about it. And the Lord says, well, how about me, Jonah? How about me? Should I not be concerned? I've got something bigger going on here. I've got 120,000 spiritually confused people here. You may not care about these people, but I do. Notice how it even mentions how the Lord is concerned for the animals in verse 11. It's a bit weird, isn't it? It's a funny thing. You know, why mention the animals? Well, I think it gives us a sense of the depth of the Lord's concern for Nineveh. You see, if the Lord cares about pagan pigs and heathen horses, if he notices them, how much more does he care about people made in his image? You see, Jonah does not get the God he's been dealing with. He doesn't get his grace. He doesn't get his compassion. He doesn't get his concern 
for the world that he has made. Jonah is a zealot. He's got top scores in his Bible exams. He tops scores in his knowledge of the law of God. Top scores in his distinctiveness. He follows all the rules, but he's got a rebel heart. You see, this devout preacher is not energized or driven by concern for lost people because he doesn't get God's concern. And we need to ask ourselves, don't we? Like, what are we concerned about today? Apparently, in a recent survey done by Queen Mary's University, Londoners are very concerned. They're very concerned about how livable London is. 64% in the survey thought the life in the city got worse, and they were concerned about housing, antisocial behavior, high taxes, air quality, transport. Now, God cares about those things. They matter. But are we looking at our city just the way everyone else does? Do we see what God sees? There are 8 million people in London. Yes, we live in a polluted, noisy, stressful, overpriced city. We live in one of the most densely populated bits of Europe. And we're forced, therefore, to look at people all the time. You kind of can't escape them. They're all around us, surrounded by them. They're in our way on the tube. They're in our queue for the um, Thai food. They're annoyingly noisy next door. They're super slow in making us coffee in Nero's. We're surrounded by all these people. They're everywhere, like little ants. What, what are these people? What are these things all around us bumping into us? They are works of art made by God. Do you know what? In this stressful, overpriced city, you live in an art gallery. London is God's art gallery. And that is why London is such a brilliant place, because it's more filled with works of art than anywhere else in the UK. And Jesus died for those works of art. They matter to him. God cares about the salvation of those people. How much does he care? Well, it's striking to think that according to this passage, that God even cares about the cats and the dogs of London. He even cares about the infidel foxes and the pagan pigeons. Though, to be honest, I've got to, I've got to give it, I, can, I struggle with that. But if he, and if he does care about that, how much more does he care about the people made in his image? People who are spiritually confused. And yes, even people who you may not want to be seen dead with. Nasty people. Dangerous people. We look at people all the time, don't we? But do we see them? Do we see what God sees? See, we're called to see London the way that God does. Let me tell you about another, another Jewish missionary in the Bible. Like Jonah, this man had the very best spiritual pedigree. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had top scores in his Bible exams. He too had been a hater of the dirty Gentiles. He was a Jonah of Jonas. And yet this man was transformed by the grace of God. I'm speaking, of course, of the Apostle Paul. And Paul, through an experience of the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus, became a kind of anti-Jonah. He willingly and happily, in his time, went to the great city of his time, Rome. He was even shipwrecked on the way. Not because he was avoiding God's purpose, but because he was living out God's purpose. He didn't avoid the city, but he went into it. In fact, he almost certainly died so the gospel might be preached there. And the question for you and me today is, do we want to be a Jonah or do we want to be a Paul? What are we concerned about? 
The book of Jonah ends on a kind of cliffhanger. Verse 11. We're never actually told of Jonah's response. He disappears from the story because the question is asked to you and me today. Now, of course, some here today, maybe you might be tempted right now to run away from the city for all kinds of good reasons. And it's obviously not wrong to move out of London. Obviously not wrong. It's not godless. We're free in Christ. But consider, if God can call his apostle to a great city through shipwrecks and eventual execution, don't be too quick to think the difficulties mean you should leave to get a better life. I do ministry on a council estate in Chelsea, and the steps up to my flat are used all the time as a urinal by locals. I literally sometimes take my kids up the steps with some peeing right next to us. I phone 999 regularly because people are doing all kinds of craziness in our neighborhood. I've had people come into my church to beat me up, and my church is covered in pigeon poop. And do you know what? Sometimes I think it would be nice to live somewhere else, and I am free. You are free. It's not in any way godless to move. And if you need to move out, fine. But be careful. Be careful that what's driving your decisions, be careful that the thing that drives your decisions is the priorities of God. There's nothing wrong with a bigger garden and apple trees and fresh air and a gun to shoot pigeons with. (laughs) But, But those things, they are not the top of God's priorities for you or me. You know what? Maybe he'll give you an apple tree, or maybe he won't. But don't make the apple tree the top of your agenda. Rather, be driven by God's compassion for his lost world. If you're thinking of moving out, why not move out to a council estate in the suburbs or outside of London, where believers are massively underrepresented? Have you thought about that? Why not move out to Saudi Arabia, where it is illegal to become a follower of Christ? Suddenly, Balaam looks a lot better, doesn't it? And for others of us, we're not, we're not, we're not thinking of moving because we can't. We're stuck. We're stuck. Maybe our job is holding us. Maybe you can't give up your council flat. And you feel, oh, I'd love to get out of London, but I'm stuck here. But remember, do not waste where God has put you. Don't ignore God's purpose for you. God has put you in London. It's not an accident. It's not a chance. God has a purpose for you and a plan for you. And he wants to use you to do good to your neighbor, to love people, and to preach the Lord Jesus. Let's make sure that we're not just looking at our city, but we are seeing our city. Let's make sure we're not just putting up with our estate, but loving people there. Others, others of us need to make sure that actually our lives are about more than making marmalade and having nice country walks. If you stay, make Jesus known. If you move out, Make Jesus know, and make sure that you move out to spread the gospel, not to build a nice shelter for yourself where you can get some shade. The question of verse 11 hangs over us too. So there we are, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The grace of God is amazing, but it is shocking, it is disturbing, it is transforming, it is discomforting. And God's wonderful plans may not be quite what we had ordered. His salvation may be a bit more radical than what I anticipated. His church may include people I want to run away from, and he may call you and me to something we don't actually really want to do. Grace is not a comfort blanket to make us feel all warm and snuggly. 
that it turns our worlds upside down and inside out. It reworks our hearts. God may call you through shipwrecks and storms to a place you never planned to go. We've been sent out to make the God of grace, the God of grace known. Let's go again. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you were challenged and encouraged by it. Stay tuned for a few great extras, as well as all the seminar talks from the weekend. See you next time.